The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So tonight I want to talk about um, the practice of non-harming. And uh, what some of you have been here the last couple of weeks, and I spoke about the teaching of the Buddha's the Buddha on the Four Noble Truths, and you can think of these as liberating truths. And it's sort of provocative that the first liberating truth is that there is dukkha, that life is limited or challenging or even hard to bear. And so the question is, what do we do about it? And the practice of non-harming is one of the things we do about this predicament of living in a world that's limited, that's uncertain, that's unsatisfying. And so I want to talk about how that, like, because it sounds like a burden, you know, you mean on top of living in a difficult world or imperfect world, I also have to be good. You know, we think of morality, these moral injunctions, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't harm others, as like a burden we have to bear if we want to fit in or if we want to feel good about ourselves. So in that same talk that the Buddha brought up the Four Noble Truths, life, experience, it is fundamentally limited. I mean, it's bad. The Buddha didn't say experience is bad or the world is bad. It just can't be grasped. We can't find the solid, permanent, safe place we want in life. So even if we do reasonably well at getting positive circumstances, is there anybody who stops struggling? Right? I mean, a lot of us, in the great scheme of things, we are the privileged people on this on this planet, at least many of us are in a lot of ways. But we're still struggling, at least I am, right? Trying to make life even more secure, more safe, more the way I want it. Trying to get rid of those threats that aren't even here yet but might come. You know, and partly the way we deal with our threats is we practice distraction. Staying busy, staying unaware, so we don't, you know, We pretend to ourselves, with ourselves, as if aging and death isn't going to happen. Some of you know Sunday morning is just like the evening program, but uh, we do do some chants on Sunday morning that we don't do in the evening program. And the chant we did this morning is the five remembrance chant, or five subjects for frequent recollection. This is a teaching the Buddha. He emphasized that we reflect on these five things often. So I'll just read what they are. It doesn't take long. I'm of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I'm the owner of my karma. Karma you might know, means intentional actions. I'm the owner of my intentional actions. I am the heir to my intentional actions, born out of my actions, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever intentional actions, whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Thus we should frequently recollect. And it really comes down to this teaching that it matters. It matters how we think and how we act in the world. And this is how the Buddha outlines the Eightfold Path. I won't go through the whole thing, but just generally, you know, given this basic principle that it matters how we are in the world, how we show up, so then... The Buddha says, well, if you want to be free, you have to practice with the full range of life. You can't leave anything out. And it's a practice of freedom. So we have to bring mindfulness to the most subtle part of how we are in the world, which is the understanding that we're living out of. So that's the first part of the Eightfold Path. Generally, we call that the wisdom piece or the understanding piece. 
and we're purifying our view or purifying our understanding by paying attention to our understanding. Like we may not notice now, like I said, it's subtle and pervasive, but right now each of us, we're operating out of a, a view. We have some view, like even the view, I'm a human being at Kamagan. You know, we don't, that doesn't stand out in the mind unless we look and go, oh yeah, I do have that view. We have all kinds of assumptions or points of view, opinions that are mostly un, we're unconscious of. And so part of what we do is we practice being aware of the view and purifying it, which leads ultimately to complete the complete release of the heart or freedom. It's the freedom, it's a heart that's free from wrong view or free from any understanding that isn't in alignment with the way things are. Like, just an example, you could, we all, in moments at least, fall into the view, it's a great world. Well, it isn't a great world, and it isn't a bad world, it's just, it's mixed. But, you know, or you could have the idea, you know, it's all screwed up. Well, that isn't really accurate either, is it? But people, we live under one of those two views often. And when we're in one of them, we really think that's the truth. We don't question it. And we sort of massage the facts to fit our view that, you know, life sucks or life's great. I'm a good human being. I'm a bad human being. You know, there is a higher power. There isn't a higher power. We have all sorts of opinions that affect how we are in the world and cause problems sometimes when they're not when those views aren't really in alignment. So that's the first part of the Eightfold Path, purifying the view, using awareness to purify the understanding of the mind. The second, and this is the general way the Buddha will talk about it, wisdom first, sila second. Sila means ethical conduct or integrity. So we're purifying our actions. We're using awareness to pay attention to our actions, how I'm relating to you, to myself, to the world at large. And by paying attention, I'm learning like what kind of actions are liberating and what kind of actions complicate and entangle the mind, cause problems. So we purify our action and that leads to the happiness called the freedom from remorse or bliss of blamelessness living in harmony, living without conflict, that's its own kind of liberation, right? You know, when we're living and we have problematic relationships with most of the people in our lives, well, that's like hell. That's like being in prison. We're in prison by our bad relationships or our challenging relationships with everyone. I remember someone sent me a cartoon, this was long ago, from the New Yorker. And a guy's being interviewed for a job and the interviewee, uh, the interviewer says, it says here uh, that, you know, you've been fired from, you know, all your previous jobs and something like, and you've, you know, threatened them with lawsuits. And the guy goes, are you trying to make me angry? (laughs) I mean, it's like, we have a way of getting into conflicts and creating help for ourselves. And so, when we bring awareness to that, we see how the way we're relating isn't working. It's causing hell. It's putting us in prison, literally sometimes. And then, you know, then we do all kinds of terrible things to get out of that prison. You know, we break up with the person or we justify doing things at work because we don't feel it's a fair relationship. And we dig the hole deeper and deeper. And then the last thing we do is we use awareness, mindfulness, to purify the mind itself. So here it means we're teasing out, with awareness, we're teasing out the cognitive habits, thinking habits, that are stressful. In Buddhism we talk about it as uprooting greed, anger, and delusion from the mind. Or uprooting the five hindrances. Those of you who have been coming for a while know that Last spring, we talked about the five hindrances. So that's greed, anger, and delusion. But 
It's just described in a different way. It's greediness, aversiveness, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. And when we uproot these, when temporarily, if we remove these, then our mind, for a while, is purified of those things. That's the definition of samadhi, or concentration, when the mind has been purified of qualities that are agitating and distort the mind, so the mind doesn't see clearly because it's like got a bug up its butt, right? And it's uneasy. Like if I've got a lot of greed going or a lot of aversion going, it's hard. Even if I'm relating to somebody who has nothing to do with my aversion, it gets in the way. My mind is upset or it's distorted. It's not clear. It's not steady. So I want to talk mostly about the sila, the middle piece here, this purification of action. And to really see it um, as a liberation. We have all the incentives to cultivate non-harming, to revere or commit to the practices of non-harming. And the thing about this part of spiritual life is we often see it in a very superficial way, like I'm not out there killing people or robbing, stealing things that aren't mine. You know, so we, we look at our lives in a general way and we think, I'm better than those bad people who do hit and who do steal, so I guess I'm okay. But the thing about this practice of non-harming or the purification of our actions, there's really no end to it. So it's not about getting into this comfortable idea that I'm good enough, my sila, my ethical conduct is good enough, and I don't have to really pay attention. See, that's what we would do if we feel like I have to make a certain grade, otherwise I get thrown in jail, or otherwise people don't want to be around me. But once I'm there, I don't need to worry about it. But if we see it instead as something that is inherently liberating, meaning it feels good (laughs) in the deepest sense, well then we have every incentive to get interested. Well, What would the practice of non-harming look like in my life? Where might I dig in or unpack my life, look a little bit more deeply. I mean, there's some things that are really, hopefully, for most of us, in our face right now, like global warming and just the general environmental crisis we're in the middle of. And, of course, we're all contributing to the harm that's coming, harm to people, harm to other species, harm to the planet. And it's easy to think, it's not my problem. Heck, I own a Prius, you know, or something like that. But, uh, you know, there's that tension like when we cook a meal or when we make a consumption choice, you know, how much do we need? What, What are better and worse choices? We just... We'd much rather just have a story that either I'm bad and so it's, or it's going to happen anyway, so why bother? Or I'm good enough, I'm better than these other people. I contribute to the Sierra Club, you know, and we sort of, so to uh, instead feel the tension, the uncertainty, like what else can be done? And not to squeeze our life into some sterile, uh, unpleasant place where there's no fun, you know, it's like, can't do anything. You know, another place is uh, around the racial injustices that are, you know, embedded in so many ways in our culture and are, you know, just the historic trauma coming out of our history, I mean, just human history generally, and then specifically the United States. And again, it's like, uh, that the kind of harm that continues, isn't it easy for us, especially those like a white male in my case, it's so easy to somehow feel it's not, I'm not at fault, it's not my problem. So the practice of non-harming is we, we enter into this ambiguous space of looking at our actions, looking at our speech, 
what we say, what we don't say, what we do, what we don't do, looking at our consumption habits, what we do with money, our attitude about money. We look at our sexual activities and how, and and generally, more generally, just the play of power, how we use power and attraction and uh, in our relationships to manipulate, to control, to get what we want, as opposed to to take care of everyone, including ourselves, to make life a little bit easier, a little bit more wholesome and safe for everyone. So this is what that commitment looks like. And you know what? We're not going to do it unless we begin to realize how liberating it is to get interested in these things. And not to assume that, you know, I'm not a bad person. Well, maybe that's true, but we're still interested in being free. This freedom from remorse, you know, sometimes people call it the sleep of the just. And you can think about that because, you know, if we've had a particularly messy day where people have pushed our buttons and we've acted out in different ways, maybe we were a little defensive or because we were hurt, we gossiped gossiped and put somebody down, made fun of somebody in some way. Or we were at work and we spent, you know, most of the time taking care of personal business or whatever it was. And uh, you know how a lot of times at night we want to stay really busy until we fall asleep. You know, we got that novel or the media of some sort going. Because we don't really want to be there in an, a sensitive way and feel whatever's left over from the day or our whole life, like unfinished business, something that doesn't have a good aftertaste, something we did or said that doesn't have a good aftertaste. And this is our telltale sign, you know, about freedom from remorse. And also, like when we're in crowds too, with other people, you know, if we've been cultivating a generous, kind, caring, sensitive um, way of being, connection or relationship with others, then it sort of tends to come back at us. It's like if people feel safe around us because our integrity is really good, our moral integrity is really good, then they tend not to be hostile to us, right? And we start to feel safe around them. There's this uh, description of this that really brings it to the nth degree from a Zen teacher, a Japanese monk. Some of you know Houston Smith. He was a well-known religious scholar. Um, He's dead now, but Bill Moyers once interviewed him and kind of made a splash on PBS a long time ago. <clears throat> and I think in that conversation with Bill Moyers, um, Houston Smith, who was in Japan at this meditation retreat with this Japanese Zen master, um, asked him at the very end, you know, so what is this all about? Something like that. And so the teacher gave this great answer. He said, infinite Gratitude for all things past, infinite service for all things present, and infinite responsibility for all things future. So this is a nice sort of sense of morality. And again, notice how that can feel like a real burden, you know, to be grateful for the past, like what we're receiving. Now, everything we're receiving was set in motion in the past. It's the fruit of past causes. We, this physical body, is the fruit of past causes, right? Like mom and dad getting together and the food that got put in us and all the other, you know, health care that we received and shelter and all of those past causes, the culture we grew up in, for better or worse, this is the result of past causes. 
So, where was I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, thank you. <laughs> One of those little meltdowns there. <laughs> yeah, so we have gratitude for the past, and it's it's like that's how we have moral integrity, you know, because the past, everything is something we're relating to. Even ideas, we have a relationship to ideas. So the past, as an idea, we want to relate to it skillfully. We want to be grateful. Even though it's not all perfect, all those past causes that lead up to this being the way it is, they are the way that they are. And it's better to say yes to it, like, okay, this is what's showing up right now. This is the fruit of the past showing up as my circumstances, my experience right now. Sense of gratitude, a sense of welcoming. That is a skillful way. It's liberating as opposed to always complaining about what's showing up. That puts us in a prison of our own negative mind states. And then uh, infinite service. Like instead of this stingy idea of like, I want safety in the present moment. As if somehow we can get some place where we're totally taken care of. You can just flip it. A generous attitude is a much more pleasant moment or mind to inhabit than a mind that instead of this infinite service to everything present, it's like, infinite demands for my needs. You know, like imagine if I were up here and consciously or unconsciously all my motivations were about taking care of my emotional needs, like really needing you to respect me in a certain way or treat me a certain way or laugh at my jokes. Or, you know, that would be would be difficult for you, but even if I'm not aware of it, it would be even more difficult for me to be in that stingy place of in all my relationships trying to get something. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have needs. Of course we have needs. But to the degree that we live our life just to fulfill our needs, our imagined needs, that's really hellish. Because life, you know, our other relationships and everything else that has to do with life, sometimes... It meets our needs and sometimes it doesn't. And we're not in control whether all of our imagined and real needs get met, are we? I mean, there's so many aspects to the causes and conditions that, you know, lead us to be receiving something or not receiving something, getting the success we want or getting the opposite. So this... uh, Attitude of generosity is really a wonderful, um, or service, is a wonderful attitude to have about the present moment. Not what can I sort of lock away from myself, but how can I give? Not because even the world needs me to give, but because it's liberating to have that attitude of service. Giving away our love giving away our understanding, our patience. And then infinite responsibility for all things future. I mean, it ties into the first two because as the passage I read, the five remembrances say, what all we really have is our karma. Karma, again, intentional action. So the future we're setting in motion. We are responsible for the future. I mean, not completely. All of us together make the future. It's like our collective motivations, the quality of our collective motivations is creating the future. So if collectively we're mostly operating out of greed, that's what we're setting in motion for for us and whoever follows us. That will be the continuation of now acting on greed. If we're acting on kindness and generosity and understanding, 
then we're setting something else in motion, something much more useful and beautiful than greed or aversion, fear. It's like, uh, you know, these, uh, you, you can see if you study history or even study current events, you see how fear and anger and violence and aggression fuels fear, anger, aggression, and violence. On and on. So the lawfulness is so clear. And also, you, we also see at times different voices, you know, voices, voices that are more about kindness and about inclusivity, about understanding how we're all in this together. And there can be reverberations of those forces too that are quite positive and beautiful. So traditionally in Buddhism, we use the five precepts and you can take these up and some of us, you know, repeat them silently in our mind every day. On Sunday mornings, once a quarter, like we did this morning, usually around the solstices and equinoxes, we chant the five refuges and the, uh, the three refuges and the five precepts. And these five precepts basically are different versions of committing to non-harming. The first one is, I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings or killing living beings. The second, I undertake the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been freely given. The third is, I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. The fourth is, I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. And the fifth is, I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that lead to carelessness, right? Because we lose our clarity when we intoxicate the mind. So, you know, the way to think about the precepts or this general training in sila or this commitment to non-harming or reverence for life or this practice, liberating practice of integrity is to kind of work on all levels. Like sometimes in our lives we really need a restraining force. There's a lot of habit energy propelling us towards something and it's being met met with some wisdom that's saying, honey, you really don't want to do that. You remember when you've done things like that or you saw somebody else do that and that thing happened? Do you want that to happen? So part of the practice, this practice, is restraint. Now, we don't often think of that in terms of Buddhist practice because we always think about Buddhism as, you know, we're just, you know, seeing things as they are, letting things be accepting. But just in the same way that a mother or a father, if they see their child running into a busy street, you know, they're going to their response is going to be quite loud and forceful. They're not going to hold back. They're going to grab the child and, you know, pull them out of danger. The Buddha even had this once. Uh, somebody, they were trying to sort of create a, a breach in the Sangha, in the sort of community that the Buddha had formed. Uh, there was just a lot of competition among spiritual teachers at that time. And so the Buddha was talking with the king and the king was sort of in cahoots with another spiritual teacher trying to embarrass the Buddha. So he asked him this tricky question. He said something like, isn't it true that you teach about non-harming? And the Buddha said, yeah, yeah, it's very important. He goes on, talks about how important it is. And then he said, isn't it true that you said this to this um, other monk? Uh basically saying that his actions are going to lead him to be reborn in hell or something to that effect. And uh, the Buddha said, yeah, I did say that. And then the guy thought he had gotten him in a trap. Okay, so there you said you're committed to non-harming and yet you said some words that clearly were hurtful to the person. And the Buddha said, he he told the king, well, how about this? Suppose you're 
daughter over there got a stick caught in her mouth, what would you do? And the king said, well, I'd, I'd do whatever I'd have to do. I'd, I'd even put my finger in there and I'd pull that stick out even if it cut her mouth. I'd get it out of there before she choked. And the Buddha said, well, yes, in the same way. So in terms of, I'm not talking so much in terms of us controlling the actions of other people as much as our own. So we need that powerful force of restraint. We have to strengthen that because sometimes we're like that child. We don't know better. We put the stick in the mouth or we run into the busy street and we need some part of our mind, our heart, to say, stop that. No, this is not going to happen. I mean, thank God that that force of restraint operates at times. Can you imagine if, you know, we didn't have any restraint. I mean, clearly, we'd all be dead by now. If every whim, every bad idea that ever came into our mind, we acted on, it wouldn't be good. <laughs> so we already have this force of restraint. It's just a matter of strengthening it and making it wiser. Because restraint can get a little neurotic, too. It can get overblown, like trying to control too much. So it needs to be used very strategically, the force of restraint. Then the other aspect of non-harming or this commitment to integrity is more around this uh, having um, cultivating positive aspirations. So it's like we're painting a picture for ourselves of what could be. Now, again, this could be misused too, like a way to judge ourselves, like, we have this ideal of being a really loving, generous human being, and then we notice we're stingy, you know, when it comes to sharing dessert with our partners, and we hate ourselves about that. But we can use the positive ideal as a way of orienting our life. It's like uh, having a scent of how free that would be, how beautiful that would be, to be that kind, that generous, that wise, that skillful human being, you know, who knows how to use words to bring people together, not to be divisive. You know, words are like, or should be like medicine. You know, the right words at the right time, having the right effect. And when it's not the right time, when we don't have something to say, then we use silence. That's like uh, Sylvia Borstein says with speech, you know, is, when we're about to speak, is this an improvement on silence? You know, is it what we're about to say an improvement on silence? Often it's not. And then the last part of this commitment to non-harming and the liberation of non-harming or the bliss of blamelessness is more of a natural activity. And now, probably, not often, but probably there are moments when the expression, the integrity of non-harming isn't something that you're doing. You might notice the wholesomeness of your actions in the world, your speech, your thoughts, what you do and don't do, but it's just happening the sort of goodness and integrity of your actions is arising naturally and your the mind or wisdom knows that the that you're being skillful and knows that it isn't a weight like me trying to be the skillful one there's no weight like that no contraction in our mind of having to be good so the good is happening as if it's just nature doing what nature does. In the same way wind blows and water falls when it's raining. And and sometimes our actions are just the right thing in the right moment. Because the action comes right out of the moment. It comes right out of a mind that is awake, clearly aware, non-distorted. And so then actions come out that are in alignment with the moment because the mind is clearly aware. 
So that's the freedom we're going toward. And that's also the practice. Sometimes we need heavy-duty medicine and we pull out restraint. You know, and basically, we do whatever we can do to keep ourselves from doing something that's unskillful. And sometimes restraint itself is just slightly more skillful than not restraining ourselves, right? Like we have to pull out the heavy guns. You know, if you do that, I'm not going to let you watch TV tonight. You know, we sort of, like a parent, don't you do that sometimes? Or we offer a reward. That's more the middle part, you know. This is a really good thing. If you do that, you'll get rewarded. And sometimes we have to sweeten the deal. (laughs) You know, we throw a few things in, you know. If you restrain from these things, if you stick to your commitments. But we're really interested in going in that direction where sila, ethical conduct, morality, commitment to non-harming, is just the natural, effortless expression of our lives. But we can't just go there immediately. I mean, if we could, we would, right? We would just be good people and we'd be reaping the benefit of it and everything would be easy. But we have a lot of conditioning. You know, the mind has been wired. But we're basically a beast, right? We're an animal. We have a reptilian brain and we share a lot of genes with our other mammals, let alone the, you know, through evolution, all the other tendencies that have been picked up and are embedded in our mind, in our brains. So it takes some training to know how to handle this kind of conditioning and how to be patient. And I'll just end before opening it up for discussion, um, you know, just pointing to how difficult this is and how we're in it for the long haul. And if we tell ourselves it's a heavy trip, we won't do it. It's not a heavy trip. It's a liberating trip to cultivate sila. Somebody said once, oh, it's Shantideva, this Buddhist saint from, I think, the ninth century, an Indian Buddhist monk, said, we are like senseless children who shrink away from suffering but love its causes. Right? We don't want to suffer, but we tend to like doing things that lead to suffering. So, you know, to cultivate sila, uh, it's really getting the scent of liberation. The Buddha says it's a smell that when someone has a lot of integrity, a real commitment to non-harming, it's like a fragrance that goes everywhere. You smell it. It's like unmistakable. And we probably run into people every once in a while who have real good sila, really good integrity. It's like non-harming and sensitivity and generosity, virtue. It just comes easy for them. And people, isn't, aren't they the people we all like? You know, and would like being around? So maybe I'll leave it here and, uh, open it up for discussion. You might, I'm sure a lot of us, a lot of you rather, have learned a lot about the pain that comes from neglecting this work, basically thinking morality is really about what you can get away with. If you can get away with it, it's moral. If you can't get away with it, don't do it, right? That's sort of, that's the morality of the animal realm, which we're born into. You know, that's our past. So we have that conditioning. If you can get away with it, it's okay. If you can't get away with it, don't do it. But with our minds, now we understand that whatever this existential situation is like here for me, it's the same for everybody else here. So that I, once my mind opens to that, it's hard for me to forget that my confusion, my fear, my needs, that's something we share together. I know what it's like to be alone. 
I know what it's like to be vulnerable. I know what it's like to be afraid. So when I sense that in you, right, there's a little empathy or a lot of empathy at times. And the interesting thing is, even though on one level we're trapped by the reptilian body-based conditioning that we have, on the other hand, with the development of wisdom, like really understanding what that is, there is that conditioning, right? There, There is this tendency to be afraid, but I don't need to personalize it. I don't need to identify with it. I just need to see it and see its limitations. Like some fear, of course, is appropriate to act on. Another fear, like the fear of death, we can't do anything about. So running from the fear of death is not appropriate. Hiding, pretending it ain't so, that's just adding more stress on top of something. There's a way to start including the situation we're in. And that's how we transcend the morality of if we can get away with it, it's okay. And if we can't get away with it, well, you better not do it. Or find a way where you can get away with it. But I'll open it up now. Any thoughts you have, questions, experiences? Yeah, and please say your name. Well, that you know, one of the things they really try to do, and I think in all the series, is um, imagine this sort of utopia where there is a lot of thought about integrity. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't think it's appropriate to be pessimistic. I mean, clearly there's some serious problems. But uh, there's also, there is a, a widening, deepening consciousness that's also happening at the same time. And, you know, the trouble with media is they are operating in a business model. And so they need, they use the reptilian part of our brain. They stimulate that because we're not in control of it. You know, so if they put out something titillating, I'm going to look. Or scary, I'm going to look. If they put about somebody doing a nice thing, I'm not going to look. And so that doesn't mean that there isn't something happening. And, uh, you know, there's two sides to things like all this information. One is we can be really neurotic about it. But the other is there's also a growing sense of shared experience, you know, that we're in this together. Yeah, so who knows how it's going to unfold. Thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts that come to mind? What have you learned about a commitment to non-harming in your life. Yeah, 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 it's a really good question. Somebody this morning, um, we were talking about this because I was saying in the morning talk how so many things like even food, like how do you decide what food is okay to eat? Do we eat flesh or not? Do we eat eggs? Do we eat dairy? You know, what what is harmful and how do we decide that? And the more we look, the we realize there isn't a clear answer. We want to give a clear answer to it. So instead of thinking it through and, and imagining we, we can figure it out through cognitive activity, it's more about a willingness to be sensitive and more and more sensitive. And that might mean asking questions or looking and listening and being curious. And then... It's sort of like letting in as much data and then let the choices come from that. I mean, just, just, to, and I'm not trying to, you know, say yes or no to eating meat, but can you imagine our attitude about eating meat if we've seen everything that there is to see about the food industry? You know, it would change our relationship. Or same thing with war you know, and paying tax dollars that support military aggression. You know, it's relatively easy for me to just pay my taxes. And I'm not advocating not paying taxes at all. I pay my taxes. And I do it, I do it, I try to do it with a lot of integrity. Like, I don't complain. I don't try to get out of things. You know, I follow the spirit of the tax code. I use an accountant who follows, you know, who's really got a lot of integrity. Um... 
But what that means is, you know, I share responsibility for what our government does. And uh, I might be on the streets more if I actually took the time and paid more attention to what was going on, you know, or at least write more emails to my representatives in government. So I think that's, that's what makes sense to me is one of the real um, dangers of being busy is that we have an excuse not to have moral integrity because I'm busy and it takes time to be sensitive. And not, I'm not talking about being sensitive like reading articles on the internet, although that can be really helpful. But that motivation has to come from sensitivity. It's like when we're shopping and there's all this plastic. I mean, this is just a simple example that comes with the product that we bought. You know, if we're just in the moment, as we're, you know, struggling to get the package open, so, th- you know, they package things this way so that it, it allows inventory to be, to la- I mean, it's all business choices. Uh, and so we go through that, but if we're sensitive and we just see what's happening, it breaks our heart a little bit. So then the next time we're shopping, that brokenheartedness will weigh in. It will affect whether we make the next purchase in just a little way. And then cumulatively, we our values start to change. Do I really need this? Because if I buy this, that means this thing is going into the landfill. One more thing. And remember, this isn't... We don't do these kinds of reflections to get heavy about things. We don't become sensitive to be heavy. It's liberating to have a lot of integrity. It seems like it would be heavy to really know what's going on in the world. But it's actually, it's heavy to stay distracted or to stay disconnected. That's what's actually heavy. But it's, you know, the, the thing is we don't really... Just because we don't know we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering. We see this in other people actually pretty well. It's hard to see in ourselves. But isn't that true? You could be talking to one of your friends and they could be in a really heavy place. You know, and you'd say, well, how are you doing? It's, oh, I'm fine. You know, I mean, they really don't realize that they're not happy. I mean, just even as a culture. Maybe we're not happy. So maybe this integrity is the way to happiness. This is something to explore. And I think it isn't about figuring it out. It's really the awareness. So each of those three purifications, purification of understanding, the mind, and of action, it's just bringing awareness to these different places in our lives. And it makes it, it sort of liberates us from having to figure it out, which is its own kind of hell realm like to eat meat or to not eat meat, to drink alcohol or not drink alcohol, you know, to meditate or not meditate. Other thoughts? Yeah, Doug. Two guardians of the world. Yeah. Yeah, conscience, our conscience. Yeah, wholesome concern and wholesome regret. Mm Mm-hmm. As opposed to, you know, lacerating guilt. That's not a, a protection. So the Buddha was, he's basically talking about what we've been talking about tonight. So it's really, but he sort of highlights these two things and they're really, this is the continuation of the past. So to whatever degree we've been paying attention, being mindful in our life, then that now exists as our conscience. So when I'm about to do something, let's say Rob leaves his wallet, you know, on his cushion and I'm cleaning up and I see it there, you know, and got lots of presents to buy. So as I'm sort of deciding what to do with the thing, you know, there's, well, I mean, for that sort of situation, there's not any question in my mind because the thought of taking something that's not mine is so deeply repulsive in my mind. I mean, not maybe for everybody, but in my mind. Or even like... uh Caitlin was saying that her car was broken into on Thursday night. She was here for a program on Thursday evening. And, uh, you know, 
that the thought of breaking into somebody's car and taking something is really repulsive for me. Now, what is that? Well, that force we call Hiri Otapa. That's Those are the Pali words for that wholesome regret, wholesome shame. Like, even the thought of doing something like that is repulsive, let alone the actual act. And uh, that gets set in motion through our actions. Like, either we're loosening, like I notice uh, there were certain lines I wouldn't cross and there was a certain uh, moral like restraint built into the mind. But once I've crossed it a few times, then it's easier to cross it. It gets loose. You know, I, like sometimes I'm on a roll and I'm not, I'm not going to drive my car. I live just seven blocks away unless I have to go somewhere afterward or have to bring something that's heavy. And and I you know I have a lot of integrity around it, but then I, if I if I make up excuses, I find a way not to listen to that voice, right? Then I have that passage around that voice, and I can use it more and more. And all of a sudden, it becomes the rut that I keep falling into. Well, yeah, I'll just drive. Why not? So we want to that voice of wholesome regret, like those mistakes we've met made they're like monuments telling us honey don't do that again we don't want to deny those or hide from those we actually need that force of restraint built into the heart yeah right but they're really pointing to that righteous person inside ourselves you know the force of wisdom the force of understanding the part of the mind or heart that already has started a love affair with non-harming, really sees it as a way to happiness, right? That part of the mind would be disgusted if we did that thing. So do I want to live with that internal conflict or have to squelch that beautiful garden that I've been cultivating because I'm going to do this thing that's not in alignment with that? No, I I don't want that conflict in my own mind or my own heart. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Doug. We need to leave it here. It's 8.30. So we'll just take a few seconds to take a breath together and let go of the words. Maybe tuning into your own commitment or relationship with this practice of non-harming. Intuit the, the happiness that arises when we live with a lot of integrity. This is really the place, what we call self-esteem or a sense of self-worth. We trust our own heart to be good to relate in appropriate ways, there's a real happiness in seeing and trusting the goodness in our hearts. So may we set that emotion in our own heart and in the world. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.